if you want to just look up and read and study about the giftings of the Holy Spirit. So as we've been going through this, we are in week five, I think, one, two, three, four, five, or six, something like that. So this week is the giftings of the Holy Spirit, part two. Last week we began to dig into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we looked at a number of the, the giftings and talked about those and related them. So now we are going to look at the, the balance of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, <clears throat> then also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then I'll guide you through with this uh, presentation as well. And I'm doing this because, uh, that's interesting. Let me just get out of this for a minute and try this again, sorry. Having all sorts of problems here. There we go. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's pray as we enter into our study this morning and just ask the Lord to bless us. So Father, as we open your word and as we look at this very important and necessary issue of how you have given gifts to your church, Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would you minister to us as we read your word? as we study it and as we seek to apply it to our lives. May you, Lord, open our understanding to hear and to receive all that you have for your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so looking at 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, chapter 12 concentrates on the church as the body of Jesus Christ. And we looked at that last week and how Paul talks about uh, the importance of the gifts and that every part of the body is important. And then he went into uh, the explanation of how the body can be likened to a human body, a hand, a foot, an eye, and so forth. So chapter 12, as it introduces some gifts of the Spirit to us, also compares each of us as a member of the body Chapter 13, the love chapter, we tend to call it, unfolds the essential character of Jesus Christ. And then chapter 14 takes two particular gifts, speaking in tongues and prophecy, which is what we're going to focus on this morning, and shows how any spiritual gift exercised with true Christ-likeness serves to build up his body, the church, and that's the church at Corinth or at anywhere. And so the exercising of the gifts builds up the body of Christ. And that's one of the key uh, things we mentioned last week. And last week as we got into chapter 12, we looked at these scriptures here in uh, 4 through 11, <clears throat> where it says there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. And so the Holy Spirit gives gifts to his church. <clears throat> there are different ministries that the Lord gives to the people of his church. So thankfully, we don't all have the same ministry. If we did, then it would be very one-sided. It's sort of like having all cooks in the kitchen at the same time, and that's a disaster if you've ever been through that process, especially at holidays. Uh, and there are diversities of activities. So the gifts work in different ways, <clears throat> and the gifts... While there may, maybe the same gift is given to 10 people, that gift is not always manifested in the same way in each person's life. The gift looks a little different on each person. 
And maybe a good way to think of this is if you go clothes shopping and we all decide to go buy a white shirt. Well, we're all going to take a different size and it may hang on us or look on us a little differently. We may decide I need a different style, a different cut. Even though we're, we're all going to buy a white shirt, we have to get it to fit us. And so the Lord gives us different ways that the gifts are manifested in our lives. So the gift of teaching doesn't look the same on everyone. The gift of service or helping doesn't look the same on everyone. And thank God that he gives us diversity in that way. And then we looked at verse 7 where it says, The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So right here he defines for us that the giftings of the Spirit are for the profit or the benefit of the body of Christ. So they are given to us that we might bless one another, that we might serve one another, that we might encourage one another. And then we began to look at uh, different gifts that are highlighted there in bold for you. And we're going to come back this week to um, tongues and prophecy. And then in verse 11, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So we can certainly pray and ask the Lord to give us gifts, but it is the Lord, ultimately, the Holy Spirit, who determines what gifts we get, when we get them, and how those gifts look or are manifested in our lives. And so last week, one of the gifts we looked at was the gift of faith. And we talked about <clears throat> these things that are listed here uh, under the word faith, the ability to believe God for something either in the moment or forever, to trust God against circumstances. And I wanted to come back to that this week because all week I was troubled, feeling like I had left something out. And it was actually this verse here, or, or this uh, incident in Luke 17. You may remember the woman with the issue of blood or the hemorrhage. Um, oh, that's the next slide, sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. Uh, this one is, uh, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. The reason I looked this up was because here's the issue. We might know that section there in bold, and the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith, and he said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this tree to be uprooted. But let's look at it in the context. What did it say ahead of time? The disciples were talking to him about forgiveness, and Jesus came back to them and teaching them on forgiveness. He said, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. The issue of forgiveness is the context in which the, the, the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith. Now, isn't forgiveness something that can be very hard at times, especially when someone has sinned against us repeatedly? And here, these disciples, these apostles said, Lord, increase our faith in the context of forgiveness. And forgiveness 
We know that we need to forgive. He, he, Jesus commands us in the Lord's Prayer and the Beatitudes and all over. He commands us to forgive. But here the apostles, I think, recognize the fact that when someone repeatedly sins against us, when they keep repeating over and over and over, perhaps even the same offense, we tend to use the three strikes and you're out policy, don't we, for the most part. All right, fourth time, you're done, we're done, we're all done here, don't ever talk to me again, I don't want to see your face again, talk to the hand, you know how we can be, right? And remember, uh, there was another encounter that Jesus and Peter had, and Peter said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? And he said, seven times, which was more than double adding one to what the Pharisee said. The Pharisee said, you only needed to forgive someone three times. And Peter in that moment thought he was being very wise and like demonstrating how much he had grown by saying, Lord, should I receive him seven times? Should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. So this issue of forgiveness, we're talking about the gift of faith, the ability to believe God for something. We often think of the gift of faith, and this is not talking about our saving faith with which we believed and came to Christ, but it's talking about an extraordinary faith. So an extraordinary faith to forgive someone and this is the kind of faith that is on God's level, right? Because God has forgiven us. God has forgiven us for being the ones who mercilessly crucified his son. God has forgiven us how many times? I mean, we can't even count, right? It's just like we just sang with that song, His Mercy is More. Our sins, they are many. We can't even count them. Our sins are too numerous to count, just mine. Now you take all of us, you take one church and you pile up all of our sins and you list them on a ledger before God and God has forgiven us over and over and over and over. You see, the faith to forgive is a God-like faith. And then Jesus goes on to say, in answer to their increase our faith, Lord, so we can know how to forgive in the way that you're telling us. And then Jesus says in that context, if you have faith as a mustard seed, a mustard seed. The tiniest of seeds, I don't know if you've ever gone into your spice cabinet, and if you have mustard seed, pull it out and just put one grain on your finger and look at it. It's so tiny. It's smaller than the head of a pen. And by comparison, Jesus is saying, if you have just a teensy-weensy bit of faith in me, in my word, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. The gift of faith. You see, the gift of faith is not just some great extraordinary gift to believe God for something big in a moment like raising someone from the dead or overcoming some incredible obstacle. It's the faith to obey God. It's the faith to live every day the way God desires us to live. And yes, it is big faith. Yes, it is faith that in a situation where the odds are against us to cry out to God and say, God, help us or we perish. It's all those things. But the gift of faith is so important to us, and I don't want us to miss that. And it says in verse 9 about faith and the gifts of healings, and that's where I also kind of came back to the story here of the woman who had the issue of blood. 
You see, she came to Jesus, and the story tells us that she had spent all of her fortune on doctors. She had done everything that she knew how to do. She was responsible in the sense of, you know, trying to find a way to, you know, help her issue. But then Jesus came through, and she heard about Jesus. And so she went up to him in this crowd, as as Mark's gospel tells us here. She had this flow of blood for 12 years. She had suffered many things from many physicians, and she had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. See, sometimes we take these gifts, like the gift of faith or the gift of healing, and we almost idolize them. We, we put them on such a high pedestal, we think, that, that could never be me, that can never happen to me. But understand that these gifts, as we've already looked at, uh, as we've been going through this study, that God gives these gifts severally as he will. Sometimes God gives these gifts and they come to rest on a person and they're that person's gift for life. And sometimes God will bring these gifts to bear upon a situation in a moment in time to demonstrate himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. And here this woman, this poor woman, had come up behind Jesus and she had faith in that moment to say, you know, I don't even really need Jesus to turn and look at me and say something or put his hand on me. I just know who he is. I know he's the son of God. And I know if I just reach out and touch him, and this was her, her idea, if you will, her point of activation of her faith. She thought, you know, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, he will heal me. And Jesus in that moment, it says, knowing that power had flowed out of him and Many people had touched him in that crowd, didn't they? But only one touched him in faith. You see, they touched Jesus, as opposed to the other times when Jesus healed people that he touched them. And he says here, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. You know, I wonder as this uh, woman here, uh, by the way, this is nothing against doctors or any such thing. But it makes me think of the fact that as believers in Christ, we have as our first option to turn to the Lord rather than to pick up the phone and make an appointment with the doctor. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying don't call the doctor by any stretch of the imagination. But my question is simply this for us as believers. Is our first response when we encounter something, whatever it is, maybe an illness or just a difficulty, is it to say, God help me? Do we cry out to him first? Or do we automatically do what we think we know to do, which is, well, you're, 
You're sick, obviously you have symptoms, call the doctor. Maybe the Lord wants to change our perspective and say, give him a chance first. Call upon him, reach out to Jesus, as it were. Touch the hem of his garment and say, Lord, would you touch me? Lord, would you heal me? Go that route first, give God a chance. Activate your faith and cry out to God. In other words, let your world be disrupted with faith and cry out to him first and see what he might do. Who knows what God might do if we cry out to him in faith? Let's give him an opportunity. And maybe the gift of faith, maybe gifts of healings uh, may be manifest. And then we looked at this one last week briefly, and again, this is, this is the sort of the, the preacher's remorse. You, you walk away from the pulpit on Sunday and you think, I left out all this stuff, so that's why I'm doing this again. I'm attempting to atone for my sin. <laughs> Under discerning of spirits, I thought about this one, and it's weird. I was thinking about this, and the phrase greatly annoyed kept coming to my mind, and I'm like, I know Paul said that. And so I searched on it, and here it is. Uh, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Now listen, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now you would think that this person sort of becoming your herald and becoming sort of free advertising walking around saying, hey, these are the servants of the Most High God. They've come to proclaim the name of the Lord and the way of salvation and be going, yeah, thank you, Lord, awesome. But Paul was troubled, and she did this for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, so Paul discerned that this was not the Spirit of God, but rather an unholy spirit, And he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. Now this happened in Philippi. And this is actually the reason why Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. Because they cast the evil spirit out of this girl and her masters were using her to make profit. Uh, It was a spirit of divination that was in her and she was bringing their masters much profit. And because Paul cast this demon out this evil spirit, they no longer could make a living and they got angry and took Paul and Silas before the council. They had a tribunal on the spot and ended up throwing them in jail because of this issue, because Paul in that moment had the gift of discerning the spirits. So I wanted to share that with you as sort of further evidence of the issue of discerning of spirits. And here was a situation where it even appeared that she was doing something good, right, by proclaiming that these were men of God. And then coming down further, we had already looked at the fact that the Spirit of God distributes as He wills to each one. And then at the end of chapter 12, it says, And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. So I want to look at some of these things this morning that we didn't get to go into depth on last week. So apostles are those who are sent out usually to pioneer and plant churches with Jesus's authority. That's what these apostles did in the New Testament. And as we look at modern day apostles, 
uh, in reading some of the commentators, it was really interesting how one of them brought out the fact that the, the first century office of apostle is not the same uh, that we have as apostles today because those apostles, number one, were, were with Jesus. They got a command straight from Jesus, and they did go out and pioneer and plant churches. Now, I do believe there is still a modern-day office of apostle, but it is distinct and separate from uh, our first-century apostles, the, the ones who spent time with Jesus and who, who were sent out by Jesus. We are sent out by Jesus. We've been given the Great Commission, and we should go forth. But even as we look at our list of missionaries whom we're supporting, many of them uh, are really fulfilling an apostolic function because God has called them to go to a place where no man has gone before in the sense of the gospel, and they have gone there where there aren't a lot of churches, and they've gone to plant godly, biblical, spirit-filled churches. And I submit to you that it takes someone who is uniquely filled with God's spirit and who has a gifting and a calling to go and do such a ministry. So we could call that, if you will, uh, we could call them apostles or an apostolic calling or an apostolic office in the way that they are functioning. The gift of helps, something we might overlook to provide aid or relief or render assistance. We look at that and we say, okay, that sounds pretty cool. The root meaning of the word here means to take a burden on oneself instead of another. And that nuance indicates the attitude of mind which releases such ministry in the congregation. As we look at the jobs which need to be done, we shall be motivated to divert such burdens away from others, especially those who are heavy laden, and divert those onto our own shoulders. In most churches, the load falls on too few willing, too few willing helpers who end up carrying virtually everything. So the gift of helps, the ability to come alongside one and to just lift that burden off of their shoulders and take it upon yourself. Now, when we look at this, we might think, uh, we might tend to trivialize or minimize this gift, but this gift is very significant. Now, we've probably all benefited from someone with the gift of helps. Have you ever been struggling with something, laboring with something, And someone comes along who not only has the gift of helps, but maybe even a special ability to take care of the situation that you're dealing with. And to just come right alongside you and lift that burden and to take that that heavy load and that concern and that worry and that anxiety and just lift it right off of you. And just to make that load easy and that burden light. That is the gift of help. So it's not just people who can do stuff. You know, the many hands make light work. I mean, that's a part of it. But the gift of helps has the unique ability to provide aid, to provide relief, to render assistance. Now, as you sit here this morning, as you think about that, some of you may be thinking, I have that gift because I love to assist people. I love to help. I love to get involved and just... Hey, man, if I see somebody struggling, I want to come alongside and kind of put my my shoulder to that load and help them out. So the gift of helps is a very significant and necessary gift. The gift of administrations, again, one that can be easily overlooked. We see the word administration, and sometimes we think, for example, 
secretary or something like that. This is way more important than that. The word administration can mean governing or directors or managers, and this could even refer to elders or deacons. So let me expand this a bit for you. The literal translation of the word used for administrations is pilotings. The reference is to the helmsman of a ship, the person with the responsibility of steering the vessel, keeping it on course, avoiding dangers, recognizing changes in weather and adjusting accordingly. The helmsman knows well the capability of both his craft and his crew. He knows which expertise to call on at which moment. The most effective helmsman has a quiet confidence and an immediate rapport with his crew. He neither panics nor relaxes his vigilance. He has his eye on the destination and is above all concerned that his ship and his crew reach journey's end safe and sound. This is the essential enabling ministry of the body of Christ. It is both very demanding and absolutely irreplaceable. It may be right to, to call it an administration, and if so, it must be free from any narrow interpretation and be brought right into the heart of every local church. So this is the gift of people who can take the ship, if you will, and go into the wheelhouse and know what to do and have a sense of vision and have a sense of purpose and have a sense of knowing what we must do and what direction we must go and what steps we must take. So administration is not just coming along and doing the thing that we might often confuse with helps, someone who can come in and take over the administrative work of the church and, and do those very important and necessary things, certainly, but also administration is knowing how to pilot the craft. And this is why it's important to have a good group of leaders, a group of godly, spirit-filled leaders who are there and who are praying together and who are seeking the Lord and who are looking to make good, godly decisions so that they can direct and manage and govern in such a way that it brings honor and glory to God and it benefits the church of Jesus Christ. So these gifts, these uh, functions are very, very important to the body of Christ. And I hope that what you're seeing here is how important they are. And as we share them, uh, it's been my prayer that God would begin to sort of strike a chord in those of you for whom he has given these kinds of gifts. So as we continue, we want to move a little more into the issue of prophets and prophecy. So one person put it this way, a prophet or a prophecy, uh, a word from the Lord through a member of his body inspired by his spirit and given to build up the rest of the body. Now, the rest of this here, I just kind of, I thought this was very good. I'm just going to leave it here. You'll have access to the slides later. But one Greek scholar looked at it, and he talked about how a prophet is a foreteller of future events and an interpreter of, you know, what the Lord could be saying under either influence or inspiration and sort of bringing a word to the church about something that God is going to do or is doing or is about to do. So a, a prophet or a prophecy is, as it says here, a word from the Lord through a member of the body, inspired by his spirit, and then given to build up the rest of the body. So how do we know if someone who has this gift and are, is exercising it, that it's a legit gift? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14 here, 
and see what it has to tell us. Paul writes there, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So we're going to stop there for a moment. So as we've been talking a little bit about the gift of tongues, Paul takes in particular the gift of tongues and prophecy, and he puts them on display here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and he gets into depth explaining the significance and the importance of the two gifts as juxtaposed against one another. And what he begins to tell us here is that there is a manifestation of the gift of tongues that seems to be a gift where, where someone communicates directly with God. Uh, people in certain circles have called this a prayer language. You can call it that if you wish. Uh, that's not a, a label in the scriptures, but that is what it seems to be describing. So this is where a person has a direct communication with God, and as we go on and we read this further, we understand that this is a heavenly language, it's a spiritual language, and Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of angels and of men, and know earlier as we've been talking about tongues, back in, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, on that day when the gift of tongues was given to the church, that, that was the people who were given the gifts, the ability to speak in a known language to men, but unknown to the speaker. So there tends to be, as far as we know biblically, two gifts of, of tongues or two manifestations of the gift of tongues. One is where the person speaking speaks in a known language, unknown to themselves. And then another is where they are able to have a spiritual language, a heavenly language, where they communicate directly with God. Now, as Paul is addressing the issue at the church at Corinth, who seemed to have all the gifts in full bloom and exercising all those gifts, although in a very disorderly fashion, Paul is now addressing them saying, look, I want you guys to prophesy. I want you guys to speak in the normal language of the people, and uh, this would be the best thing for the body of Christ. This would be the best thing for the church. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. It's okay that you have that gift of being able to communicate directly with God and God with you, but it doesn't benefit other people. So to, to bring that gift out into the open and to use it in the gathering of the church, uh, people just sit there kind of wondering, well, yes, they're having a little moment for themselves between them and God, but it has no bearing on bringing benefit or value to the church. For it says, however, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. So we're going to cover that in just a moment. But he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Now remember, Paul said earlier, the benefit, the value, the reason the gifts are given is to benefit the church. And so when we bring tongues into the context of the setting of the church, it doesn't benefit the church. It benefits the person. So he's pointing out here selfishness and self-centeredness versus the benefit of other people. 
So he's not saying that the gift isn't valid, that there's something wrong with it. He's saying let's use wisdom and common sense and how and when and where we exercise those gifts so that they're used for the benefit of the church. And he says in verse 5, I wish you all spoke with tongues, meaning you had that benefit of that deep, rich, personal, spiritual connection with God. Uh, But even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So you see the importance and the emphasis Paul places on the, the gift of interpretation if tongues are exercised. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? In other words, if I don't bring a word that you can all understand, of what benefit or of what value is it? And then he talks about the comparison with musical instruments. So let's look for a moment at these three things, edification, exhortation, and comfort. Edification is building up. It is a construction term and speaks to our being built up in the Lord. The idea is to cause cause growth. A word of prophecy will build someone up, help them grow in the Lord, rather than tearing them down. So when someone brings a prophetic word, it has the effect, according to Paul, if it's done according to the Spirit and biblically, it will build people up. It will edify them. It will also bring exhortation. Exhortation is encouragement in the form of entreaty and persuasion. It is like the speech from the coach in a locker room, rallying the team to go out and perform as they have been trained to perform. A word of prophecy will encourage, invite, and even establish someone in the faith and persuade someone to move forward and even to take action. A word that's spoken with a prophetic edge, if you will, will have sort of that idea of you can do this, you should do this. The word of exhortation is to move us forward and to get us sort of, you know, out of our laziness and begin to to do what God is speaking to us to do. And then the idea of comfort is the idea of not only consoling, but also strengthening. See, comfort doesn't just make us feel good, it strengthens us. And you can see how it's connected to encouragement. It doesn't just cry with someone who is hurting, it puts its arms around them and then strengthens them to carry the load. And you can see even this maybe have sort of a cousin to the gift of helps. A word of prophecy will strengthen and not weaken someone. So Paul said he wants the gift of prophecy to be used and exercised within the church and that prophecy when properly understood and exercised will bring edification, exhortation and comfort to the body of Christ. And then as we continue on in this section in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, so likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is uh, spoken for you'll be speaking into the air? There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So notice how Paul keeps bringing it back to this issue of the edification of the church. This is the purpose of spiritual gifts. 
Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So if you have that gift, the ability to speak in tongues, he's saying, and you don't currently have the ability to interpret, pray that you might interpret. So that when God gives you the unction, as it were, to use that gift in a setting, that you could then follow that up with the interpretation of what it was that you said, so that it can be used for the benefit of the church. What is the conclusion then? Uh, Excuse me, I skipped a verse. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So Paul is placing a great emphasis on the fact that when we are gathered as the body, what is spoken must bring some kind of fruitfulness to our lives because understanding brings fruitfulness. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? So again, bringing understanding. You indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. So again, coming back to if you're doing it in tongues and not allowing people to understand. And then he says, I thank my God that I I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So you get the sense of what Paul is saying here, first of all, to this church, because they had so uh, put the gift of tongues in in, in such a high place, Paul is saying, Uh, The gift of tongues is fine, it's good, it's a wonderful thing that God has given, but don't let that become front and center because it's somewhat of a sensational gift. God has gifted some with tongues and not others. And so a part of what he's getting at here is we don't want to have part of the body alienated that the ones who have that gift are special and that God hasn't blessed me with it so I must not be special. You see, that's where we tend to go when when these things happen, especially when there's some kind of sensational thing happening in the way God has gifted people. And Paul is dealing with the fact here, he's sort of chipping away at the root of the issue, that the issue is when the body of Christ gathers, we are here for mutual edification and encouragement. And the exercise of the gift of tongues without interpretation does not accomplish the purpose of bringing that exhortation and that comfort and that encouragement that we all need. And so he, he speaks about all these things, and then he says in verse 22, Therefore tongues are, are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And this sort of harkens back to the day of Pentecost, because on the day of Pentecost, remember, when the gift of tongues was given, what did the people hear? They, they heard these people speaking the wonderful uh, worship and the mysteries of God in their own language, and they were drawn to that because they knew that the people who were speaking didn't know their language. And so something unique, something amazing was happening there. So tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So when God brings a word, and prophesying can include preaching, I don't think prophesying is is exclusively preaching, but prophesying is when God brings that word directly to a servant to bring to the church, and he's saying that's for the believers. 
Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? The answer is yes, because they'll come in and go, what in the world is going on here? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. Why? Because the word of God spoken by the Spirit of God is spoken in a plain and a clear way so that all can understand and all are affected by the truth. But if all uh, prophesy, and, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Have you ever gone to a church service? And listen, or maybe even listen on the radio, let's say. And as someone is speaking, you're preaching and teaching, and you just feel like, man, it's just directed to me. Man, they're just talking to me right now. This is zeroed in on me. This is when the Spirit is at work through the word of prophecy, through the word of God, just speaking directly to our hearts. The secrets of our heart are revealed. And we fall down on our face, so it evokes worship. It brings us to that place of falling down before the Lord. And that's the idea, isn't it? That's the idea for the unbeliever to come to the place that they do that. And it's the idea for us as believers. When we come together and God's word begins to speak to us and to minister to us and the spirit of God just dials our number in and we're like, Lord, you're talking to me. That causes us to worship the Lord. So Paul, as he goes on here, as we bring chapter 14 to a close, uh, he says, how is it when you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, revelation, and interpretation? In other words, chaos ensues. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. So he's saying very simply, if we come into church and some people come and they're choosing to exercise the gift of tongues, but one or two speak and there's no interpretation and maybe the third one speaks, let's wait. But if the interpretation doesn't come from that point forward as simply a point of order and being concerned about edification and encouragement and comfort, then we're going to no longer exercise that gift and you, consider, you continue to do it there privately between you and the Lord if you wish. But as a matter of, of, of public uh, expression, no, that, that's over for today. Uh, but if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. Uh, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. So he's saying, obviously, God speaks to and ministers through many people in the body of Christ, not just one. And notice what he says here, verse 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, remember when we looked at Galatians 5 and we, the fruit of the spirit and one of the manifestations of the fruit of love is self-control. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. When people get out of control, when they want to use their gift, ooh, it's my turn to stand up and say something, at that moment what's happening is our pride has taken over 
And we're no longer concerned about the greater good and the common good. We're just concerned about my ability to use my gift in that moment and go, ooh, 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 look at me. You see, our gifts are not about us. Remember what we've talked about with the gifts thus to this point? The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. The Holy Spirit brings glory to Jesus. And so it's not about us. Whatever gift or giftings God has given us, we point it and we give it back to him. And he says, now we use it to build up and to edify the body. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And so there's a key issue he was dealing with in that church, but an issue he wants to deal with in every church is, as he says here at the end, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So the church should be run in a decent and orderly fashion. So that brings chapter 14 to a close. And when we come back to this at a later date uh, next week, we will be looking at Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, the next two places that talk about these gifts of the Spirit that God has given to His church. And so we want the Lord to be blessed and honored and edified. We want the body of Christ to be blessed and honored and edified. And I'm grateful that the Holy Spirit has given us 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 to clearly explain to us how the gifts should be used for the benefit of the body of Christ and to bring glory to God. And so we want the Lord to use us for his glory, amen, and to benefit one another, to bring a blessing. And so, Lord, this morning as we come to the table, as we come to a time of just honoring you, as we come to the table and just settling ourselves before you, and just receiving from you all that you have for us. May you minister to us as we come and we remember, Jesus, what you've done for us and how you went to the cross to take my sin upon your shoulders that I might be forgiven and washed clean and made whole and set free. And so, Lord, the table is for all who believe. And so we come this morning to you. And as the elements are distributed, Lord, we receive them. We'll hold on to them and wait until uh, the end, and then we will take them together. And so, Lord, may you be honored and blessed as we give back to you the worship and the honor and the glory that is due unto your name. In Jesus' name, amen.